Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right. So today I am going to be uh, sharing with you a lecture that I gave online to the Canis Society uh, a couple of months ago. And so you're going to be hearing um, my lecture on that and maybe a couple of questions that I answered at the end. Uh, sorry for the delay in the episode this week. Just been busy with a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I did want to get something out for you. So uh, here it is. Enjoy. I've been thinking about what Catholic economics should sound like or should look like. And um, sort of, should I be modifying my sort of libertarian, liberal uh, outlook to some extent? And um, what what can an economist bring to the table um, in terms of helping people understand, um, you know, the social encyclicals and other uh, issues like usury and stuff like that? And what I want to do is just sort of go through... Um, a few policy proposals and things like that, but I want to start off talking about what I think the problem is in terms of general economics and um, our understanding of it as traditional Christians or um, whatever you want to call that. Um, so I would say that <clears throat> economists separate moral and ethical questions um, from the sort of purely technical questions of economics. And so um you know, we in economics we call this the normative versus positive distinction, and of course, you know that's all fine when you're talking about abstract theory, um, but when you start applying that to policy and things like that, obviously things get a little bit uh, blurry. Um, and of course, there are attempts to avoid this blurriness, but I I just don't. Um, I think there's there are problems when you you, you start out with this separation, <clears throat> which is why I really like um, the idea of kind of coming back and trying to tie in some kind of um, moral, explicit moral and ethical foundation uh, to economics. And and I know there have certainly been attempts uh, at this type of thing in books previously, but I think. One of the problems we have is that they're often not written by economists or trained economists. And so, you know, even though that probably shouldn't matter if the person knows enough about economics, um, the, um, you know, when you're trying to convince other people to come to your position, sometimes credentials, uh, sometimes credentials matter. So when someone tries to take a more integrated approach, the typical response from, I would say, the bulk of the economics profession um, is to say that, well, you know, you're you're blurring the normative positive distinction, and um, in more raucous types of discussions, you hear uh, sort of a lot of name calling, socialist, fascist, or worse things. Um, when you start trying to implement um, a uh, an explicit moral foundation that is not um, that did not come from John Stuart Mill. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. 
so the reality is that even though I think a lot of times we hear denials of this, there certainly are um, underlying uh, moral and ethical assumptions to the economic theory that um, we all hear and we all read. And, and those of you who um, have a chance to uh, look at this stuff probably are well aware of this sort of thing. And so the question is, how should we tie these normative and positive things together um, as someone who's studying Christian or studying economics from a sort of traditional Christian perspective? Um, and I'm going to be explicitly uh, Catholic about it just because that's my um, that's my bent. But um, but I'm just going to say traditional Christians. Uh, you know, I think I think there should be a lot of overlap between Catholics and other uh, Christians on this sort of thing. Um, so how should how should we analyze economic policy? How should we um, how should we set up this these moral foundations, and how do those moral foundations affect the economic analysis uh, itself? Sort of separated from those moral questions. Um, and then what kind of policies should we embrace? Uh, and, and of course, you know, this is going to depend a lot on the moral uh, component, the ethical component, but it's also going to depend on uh, sort of economic efficiency and, and things like that. And so again, I'm, I'm going to start with sort of Catholic social teaching. If you're not familiar with that, um, look up uh, things like rerum novarum, and, and maybe I'll uh, get some things over to the manager of the channel, uh, some links to some of this stuff. So rerum novarum, uh, and, um, quadrigaz Moano, I think are probably two very good reads to start with. Um, Vix Pervenet, um, on usury, uh, is another good read. And there are some later encyclicals from John Paul II and, and some others that I'll include as well. And just as a, a side note here. So I am not a distributist. I don't call myself that. I don't think I ever really have. Um, I've never read any of Chesterton's economic stuff ever. Uh, I've read, I've read, I read, uh, Hillary Belloc's, um, the servile state, but I think, uh, you know, not to insult, uh, Dave distributist or anything, but I just don't, um, I think, you know, those guys made, arguments that were, um, sensible in their time. And I think we, uh, they, they were responding to a certain group of people, mostly communists. And I think that's just not where we're at and not what we, um, not the sort of thing we need to be, um, talking about. We have a different set of issues to deal with a different set of policies and a different set of, uh, you know, folks that are opposing our ideas. Um, and, and so if you, if you do want to see, um, sort of what I have to say about some of this stuff, you can check out my website and that was on the first slide there. It's just traddads.com. Um, it's a little cheesy, but, uh, we have a podcast that you can look on there. Uh, I, I have several articles and I'm sort of working on an article series, um, just centered around Catholic economics. Um, so you can check out some more stuff there and I'll put a link in the description, uh, as well if, if, uh, they allow me. Um, so in my set, in my framework that I'm putting together on the trad dads page, um, under sort of Catholic economic policy, I think there's kind of three, uh, components that we have to look at that, um, kind of frame this in sort of a Christian or 
you know, I guess more explicitly um, Catholic social teaching perspective. Um, and so if you read Rerum Novarum, you know, it's an encyclical about labor and labor relations and uh, capitalism and, and, and things like that. And of course, there's lots of condemnations of socialism of every form in there, um, and especially in Quadriguez and Milano. Um, but, the, but the thing about it that's very interesting, a friend pointed this out to me, is that, you know, the encyclical really starts off talking about the family um, as the fundamental unit of society. And so I think, um, you know, the, the, the way this runs afoul of most economic analysis is most economic analysis is really predicated on the individual um, as the fundamental unit of society and, and or at the very least, the fundamental unit of economic choice. Um, and I think there are probably ways to, um, modify the normative components. In other words, the policy conclusions, um, even if we leave the individual as the fundamental unit of the economic analysis itself, sort of in a theoretical or, uh, uh, you know, in a theoretical sense, but when we get to, um, actually analyzing policy effects and things like that, I think we have to take into account sort of the set of duties and responsibilities um, that make up a family or an extended family um, and, and think about them more that way. So that's uh, sort of the basis. And then the second point is subsidiarity. And I think this, this gets more to sort of the, the political realm. Um, and I think there's some good things in economics about um, the political realm and how people, um, how people operate when they work in the political world, whether they're politicians, they're sort of kingmakers, they're sort of political commentators in the media, they're bureaucrats, they are responding to incentives um, in much the same way that the rest of us do when we are, uh, you know, buying things and providing for our families and things like that. Um, and so we need to recognize that. And, and when we're looking at the sort of political institutions that we uh, live under, um, I think it's smart to um, use the public choice school uh, and their work to inform our analysis of economic policy. But in terms of the normative side, in terms of what we think we should be doing in terms of policy, so um when we decide whether some political unit should take on uh, a given um, area of economic policy, we need to keep subsidiarity in mind. Um, And our current Pope, uh, Pope Francis, um, every time he says subsidiarity, he seems to say solidarity right after it um, as if to sort of downplay subsidiarity. But certainly subsidiarity is a very important part of the church. And all it simply means is that, the smallest or lowest level political unit should be allowed to handle policy that it is competent to handle. So in other words, a, uh, if, if, if something can be handled by the family itself, in other words, you know, potentially at least in, you know, we would think in normal times, maybe the provision of food, right? So, um, for, for the children, right? So that should normally be handled by the family that should not be handled, um, on some larger, by some larger political unit where there's some sort of collective ownership. Um, Catholic social teaching is very serious about, um, private ownership, 
um, private ownership of the means of production and not merely in a sort of legal title sense, but um, in terms of control and things like that. And then the point is that you have a set of duties uh, incumbent on you as a Christian to um, operate properly uh, with your ownership of those assets. Um, So I think the Catholic Church's position is, generally speaking, to prefer those lower political units, except when they're not competent. So when we think of things like um, uh, self-defense of the of the nation, right, a national defense, well, obviously that cannot be necessarily handled and coordinated well um, by counties or uh, maybe even states, um, and so uh, it, it should be. Um, moved up the ladder to a higher level of analysis or to a higher level of responsibility. And so finally, the third one there, efficiency. And so I think this just really comes down to um, where economics as a discipline contributes. Um, So the first two are, you know, the first one is obviously sort of the moral foundation. The second one is the political foundation. And the third one is economics uh, contribution to um, the determination of, of good policy. And so the idea is that, um, you know, we, we just want to do cost benefit analysis correctly in light of the previous two. So in light of the fact that the family is the fundamental unit of society, in light of the fact that we prefer, uh, lower political units and we prefer, um, you know, a greater leeway on property rights, um, over more restrictions on it, uh, generally speaking. Um, then we need to, uh, when we actually look at a policy, we need to keep those things in mind when we do our cost-benefit analysis from an economic standpoint. So on to family. Uh, again, I, I, this is probably a repeat of some of this, but a fundamental unit of society that is the family, um, certainly not the individual. Um, communities do support families. Um, and communities themselves rely on commerce. So um, I, as, as anyone uh, can attest who, is, uh, who has a nice, you know, a good support system, and, and, you know, in my own experience, this is why we moved um, 950 miles halfway across the country back home, was to um, sort of be part of our, um, our, our family support group and, and to, to be part of a community of people that we, that we felt like we knew better and, and things like that. And so that, you know, whenever, whenever a family has a hard time, you know, if a parent loses a job or a child is sick or something like that, um, you know, we rely on our community and rightly so. Um, but the, the community itself is, um, certainly dependent on the commerce that happens around it. And so, um, I think in terms of one of the most obvious sort of policy conclusions we get from the, from this, uh, from looking at things through the lens of the family as the basic unit of society, um, that really contravenes the typical, um, uh, you know, economic analysis that you would hear, uh, is that local commerce should be preferred, um, and potentially subsidized. I think, um, I debated another professor on, on our, on my campus here a while back, um, talking about sort of the, the preference for, um, local commerce and local trade. And, 
um, you know, is there some reason why, uh, you know, we shouldn't just, um, you know, treat, treat trade across state boundaries or across county borders or between towns uh, the same way we treat it between uh, two countries or between, uh, you know, Farmer John and, um, you know, uh, Dave, the uh, hardware salesman. Uh, you know, I'd, the reality is that, um, and I think this rests on two things. One, um, the variability of income, so the risk to you. So, in other words, you rely on your community. Well, your community is not going to be there if you don't support it with your business, if you aren't buying and selling from members of your community. And, of course, not all the time. I mean, obviously, if it's not, not some kind of authoritarian mandate, um, but the point is that there should be some preference for that because when things go wrong, your community is going to be more tightly knit and things like that because you are, um, because you're, uh, you, you have these bonds that come from, uh, commerce and potentially subsidized. So, I mean, uh, you know, I think sort of the obvious way we subsidize local commerce is things like tariffs. Um, and of course, again, the economics profession is very famous for its uh, denouncing of tariffs and things like that. But again, yeah, that, that might give us the highest average income across all individuals, but it certainly doesn't account for an inequality based um, issue. And it does not account for variability. It does not account for um, sort of the losses of um, technological, the losses to sort of technological things, uh, you know, advanced technology, um, and the way that sort of displaces people. And of course, there's lots of discussion of that. J.D. Vance's book, um, Hillbilly Elegy, a recent um, documentary by the American Enterprise Institute called The Pursuit. Uh, should check that out for that sort of thing. <clears throat> so next... Um, a little bit more of a discussion of uh, subsidiarity. So I've already gone through this first definition here, but at least you have it if you need it. Um, and I'll, um, I'll try to put a link to the slide so that if you want those, you can always get them. Um, so Catholic social teaching does mandate private property, and it is not socialist in any sense of the word. I know there have been, uh, there was a recent um, stream by a, a pretty, uh, well-known duo in the sort of traditional Catholic space, uh, sort of about an hour and a half long uh, denouncing of distributists as socialists and blah, 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 this sort of thing. Um, and our, the first episode of the Trad Dads podcast actually tackles this, and I think we did a pretty good job uh, responding to them. But th there is a mandate in Catholic social teaching for private property. And the excesses of capitalism are condemned, but socialism is inherently condemned uh, in and of itself. Uh, so I think here where we, where we can sort of think about some, some issues with subsidiarity, uh, and, and practical policy would be sort of the connection between big business and big government. Um, I think this, this comes out really well in, uh, Patrick Deneen's book, uh, why liberalism failed. You know, he talks about this connection between, large firms and big government and how, uh, large firms can sort of feed, feed the beast, um, through things like lobbying. Right. And so again, this is where we can sort of rely on the, um, 
the public choice school of economics to understand lobbying and uh, sort of the supply of um, uh, the, the supply of favorable policy from the politicians and the demand for it from um, businesses and other interests. Um, not that those interests don't, you know, those, don't, those interests aren't always nefarious, but um, sometimes they are. And, and so if we're going to sort of build subsidiarity into things, um, you know, I, talking about how we get from A to B is very, very, very difficult. But um, one of the things that I've noticed in looking at uh, just, just observing the way policy works um, is that the when you devolve power to lower levels and it, it just sort of creates uncertainty for these large firms. So if you have a, if you have a business that operates over, um, you know, five political units and each of those five political units are uh, differ on the policies that relate well to this business. So um, here's a good example. When the whole um, mandatory labeling of GMOs thing came up, um, there was some there was some success at the state level up in the Northeast at passing regulations that would require these very large food companies to label, uh, you know, to put GMO labels on their on their food. And so, if you think about that, so now you're put yourself in the place of Campbell's or uh, you know one of these big food companies. Well, now you have to create different labels for Vermont or whatever it is. You have to create one set of labels for Vermont and one set of labels for everybody else. Well, if Vermont was, you know, Texas and had 29 million people in it, that might not be a big deal. But when it's Vermont and it has, I don't know, three or four million people in it or however big Vermont is, um, that's all of a sudden becomes a problem, a serious problem. And um, so what we saw happen was the uh, this this sort of, there were a lot more threats from other states and then Pacific Northwest and um, other states in the Northeast that were going to pass different versions of these GMO laws. Um, and what we saw was that the uh, food companies lobbied the federal government to sort of pass a preemptive law that would just create a compromise between the food company and some of these states with, uh, you know, a lot of sort of active discussion of the GMO question um, and just sort of mandate the whole thing for the whole country. And so then these smaller political units don't get to make a decision. And I would argue that, you know, labeling whether food should have a GM or deciding whether GMO food should have a, a label on it or not um, is certainly not a federal decision. And so you can see where there is this tension between big business and big government. Now, of course, bigger businesses can buy off smaller political units. Of course they can. Um, but the thing is, smaller political units are more, um, they are more um, beholden to uh, the people underneath them. And so there's certainly, um, I, I, that's where I would push back. Yes, of course, a big business can buy off, you know, uh, a state or a county, um, a state or a county's policies, but the voters in those smaller political units notice a lot more and it's a lot easier to sort of activate and um, oppose that sort of thing. I mean, just look at Ocasio-Cortez pushing Amazon out of, 
New York City recently. Uh, you know, it's, it's these smaller political units are more responsive. And then I would say at the end here, um, at the end of this slide anyway, politics and culture influence each other. I know um, if you listen to Ben Shapiro and some of that crowd uh, that was um, very attached to Andrew Breitbart's philosophy, you know, he always says, um, you know, politics is downstream from culture. But the reality is that it's, it's not that simple. It, there is a feedback mechanism. And, um, you know, the simplest way to say this is that if something is illegal, that creates some kind of a taboo um, that affects the culture. Um, you know, people just, when, when something's illegal, uh, you know, they just, they, they tend to avoid it more because they just see it as wrong or bad. Now, should they necessarily see it that way? No. Um, of course, uh, as St. Thomas told us, um, you know, uh, an unjust law is no law at all. But um, the political units can have an effect on the culture by their choice of policy. So let's see, moving on. So efficiency. So I, I'm just here. All I'm saying is just standard welfare economics. <clears throat> uh, so, um, Caldor Hicks efficiency, Pareto efficiency, pick your poison. Um, but some kind of cost benefit test that, um, that we can use now, are those the best tools always? Not necessarily. And they certainly have, uh, very big imperfections just because, Someone could conceptually be um, uh, compensated for some loss by the party that gains doesn't mean they will be. So um, it, it's all very theoretical and it, it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about reality. Um, and, and I think the thing is here that the, the, the easiest thing to talk about is sort of this idea of technical progress. I mean, you can tell even just in the name, you know, technical progress you're automatically supposed to be supposed to believe that it's good. You know, Oh, we have new technology. That must mean that we're all better off. Well, um, that may not be the case. Uh, for instance, some technical progress, uh, makes it easier to kill babies in the womb. So, um, that's certainly not good. Uh, some technical progress, uh, has given governments the ability to surveil and control, populations uh, to levels that they would have never dreamed of uh, even a hundred years ago. So again, that's a trade-off. It's not obvious that, um, you know, just because you have to think a little bit less in your life and things are a little bit easier to do, uh, doesn't mean that it's worth the problem you get from that. And so the way I talk about this is I, 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 I put it in terms of Harold Demsett's Nirvana fallacy. So I'm a huge fan of Harold Demsett's and, and the idea of the Nirvana fallacy, which basically says, um, if you have, if you're comparing the, the actually existing market arrangement versus some policy that you might use to fix some situation, an externality or something like that, you shouldn't, treat the policy alternative as if it were some kind of uh, platonic ideal. Uh, you know, just because you can draw the curves on a chalkboard and say, well, if we just, um, you know, if we just put this tax in there, then that fixes the externality, blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, there are going to be all kinds of implementation problems with that tax. 
So the Nirvana fallacies would be the idea that you can compare this perfect policy alternative to actually existing markets that are never going to, uh, they're never going to match that uh, state of Nirvana that you're putting over on the other um, example in terms of policy. So I, I take that perfectly fine. Yes, agreed. But I think the opposite of that is also a problem. Um, and uh, there's a couple of the articles on um, in defense of Tucker Carlson part two, I think, on the Trad Dads page uh, gets into this sort of Nirvana fallacy thing. And then my rejoinder to um, the Mercatus folks uh, on this issue talks about reverse Nirvana fallacy. But, but what I mean by the reverse Nirvana fallacy is just simply this. Just because some uh, just because some policy will not perfectly fix the, um, the, 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 the real world problem you see just because the policy has potential imperfections or could possibly turn out not um, to, to fix the issues that um, you want it to fix doesn't mean that you shouldn't implement it anyway. Uh, again, I think a lot of this comes down to sort of thinking in averages or thinking in expected values into the future um, and not thinking about uh, variance or variability um, and, and uncertainty as well. Uh, read Frank Knight uh, on, on uncertainty. Um, so there's a lot of human judgment that comes into this sort of thing. And that's why, um, you know, some people would argue a sort of more aristocratic form of government might be a little bit better. Uh, it's just because you have these sorts of things. Um, you have, you have possibly a chance at some better judgment. So I just want to tackle a few policy things and then I will wrap up and take any questions. Uh, so the first one is the idea of tariffs at the national level. Um, and the first thing, uh, you know, that I would say is that in the economics profession, the concept of a nation is just simply, um, you know, a map with lines drawn around it. And everybody who lives inside that, that, uh, that line, um, is, uh, that, that is the nation. It's just a, it's a collection of individuals. It's not an entity unto itself, um, that is greater than the sum of its parts. But I think it is, I think, um, just because economics cannot conceive of it that way doesn't mean that most people don't, and most people do conceive of it that way. They do conceive of the United States of America or Canada or Mexico or whatever as something beyond simply all of the individuals who make up that area. Um, there's a collective identity there. And so what that means is that that, um, that entity has a right to act on behalf of the citizens. Um, so sort of like, I mean, put very simply, um, the way a corporation, um, acts on behalf of the shareholders. Uh, so this makes perfect sense. And, and any sort of Kantian synthetic a priori from, uh, Ludwig von Mises or somebody like that, um, is just, uh, irrelevant. And I have this link in here. I don't even know why I did this, but, um, there's <clears throat> a great lecture by Edward Fazer. And again, this is something I'll put down. Um, in the uh, description box if they if they let me but um, Ed Fazer has a great lecture he gave to the Mises Institute in the early 2000s where he discusses the idea that governments have rights 
And the, the Bible is very clear on this, and you can do all kinds of gymnastics to get around that idea. But governments have rights that are independent of, uh, you know, the individuals in that, uh, that, that live under that government. Um, and so there's, there, there's a justification biblically and sort of ethically and morally for the state to act on behalf of its citizens in terms of tariffs. So, of course, um, you know, if you've taken an intermediate microeconomics course or something like that, you know, you can, you've, you've done the math and you've seen how, you know, a tariff reduces overall per capita GDP. So, you know, the average income per person um, in a country uh, is, is just simply reduced because you've, uh, you know, quote unquote, artificially uh, reduced the... Um, the amount of goods coming into the country and it, 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 it harms competition and blah, 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 this sort of thing creates dead weight loss and all that. But I think the thing is, if, if we frame this correctly in terms of the nation being an entity that's greater than some of its parts and that the nation is, is morally uh, obligated to act on behalf of its citizens, then there's a sense in which um, a, a tariff that, blocks the negative effects of creative destruction. So creative destruction being a term that says basically, uh, you know, this is, this is what competition gets us. It, 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 um, it pushes out the firms that are inefficient and it keeps only the firms that are efficient, right? Uh, so if you, if you don't act to, um, as a, as a business person, if you don't act to, uh, follow the, the, um, you know, the trends of the, of the, the, uh, of your market, then you will surely fail. Um, but of course the dark side of that is, um, unpredictable job loss. Um, uh, you know, in, in other words, variation at the individual level, um, in that, in that documentary I mentioned, um, the pursuit, there's a, there's a very interesting story about a family in Appalachia and, and the father is, is in his fifties, uh, and he's out of a job because of foreign competition or, or, or um, automation or something like that. And so he, he's just he's despairing because there is just simply nothing he can do to uh, retrain. He can't. What's he going to do? Go to college? I mean, he's 55 years old and, you know, he lives in uh, a trailer house in the, in the hills of West Virginia. Um, how is he supposed to retrain? Um, and so it's, he's not alone. That's for sure. So there is the dark side of creative destruction there. And so perhaps um, tariffs on certain goods that, that have certain, um, that protect certain industries or certain types of jobs are, uh, then potentially are justifiable. Um, and just because it reduces overall per capita GDP does not mean it's necessarily bad. Um, and the other way to go, of course, is to think about um, uh uh, quotas or uh, things called tariff rate quotas, uh, two-part tariffs. Uh, there, there are certainly a lot of different um, types of tools that are kind of, um, you know, conditional or, um, you know, have different breakpoints and things like that as well that are uh, still relatively simple. But, um, yeah, so they, so they disrupt international commerce. So what? Um, and so finally here, political uncertainty leads to economic uncertainty. Um you know, just the thing here, it, it, you're never in a, in a so-called um, free trade discussion. You are never going to have 
you are never going to maintain all of your sovereignty when you are um, negotiating to remove tariffs because just as a fact of political economy, the, the firms that have captured the government on the other side of the equation are going to get um, regulations imposed. And I mean, we, we see all kinds of examples of this uh, in my former career as a um, as an extension economist for the um, Agricultural Extension Service. Uh, I would talk to farmers about this sort of thing. Uh, we, we had talked about the um, we had talked about the uh, Trump not signing the uh, the TPP. I can't remember uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. There we go. Trump didn't sign that, and a lot of farmers were mad because, you know, they own cattle, and there, there were going to be a lot of markets for U.S. beef uh, across the Pacific. But, you know, the thing I told them was, it's not just the price of your beef, folks. Like, there, there, was, there was an agreement in there to make the Millennium Copyright Act uh, – punishable as a, uh, a criminal offense. So in other words, if these farmers got into their tractors and started messing with the software, they could be put in jail for it. Um, instead of just being sued by John Deere or whatever. So, you know, this, this is serious political uncertainty that comes from these so-called free trade discussions and they create economic uncertainty. They create uncertainty on how people are going to live their daily lives. And the next one is usury. And I know this is, this is not going to be popular for a lot of people. Um, but debt is certainly one of the biggest problems that millennials and, and very likely the Zoomers uh, coming up behind us are, are going to be dealing with. I'm, I'm 32 years old, so I'm a, I'm a very old millennial. Um, but, you know, I, the students I have in class are, are all Zoomers, and, uh, you know, a lot of them are taking on debt. Uh, and, and there are, you know, certainly there are cases where people do pretty well with, with, the, with the debt that they have to incur. Um, you know, they, they go on to, to do very well in, in their jobs, and, and it really is a boon to them. You know, sometimes these, these situations are, are helpful for them to sort of get out of a situation where they wouldn't be able to afford any kind of college or, uh, you know, sort of advanced education. Um, I, I have an article on usury on the trad dads page, so I don't want to say too much about this because it's a huge topic. Um, but there is, um, there is an article up there on usury, uh, that I think lays things out pretty well. Um, and if it's not up there right now, it will be soon. Um, Basically, the concept of usury is that a, a lender charges profitable interest and is allowed to recover damages from the borrower, um, regardless of whether or not there is collateral. So if a loan um, is charges does not charge profitable interest uh, and it, uh, and it is collateralized and they cannot that the 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 lender cannot seek restitution from the borrower himself then the loan is not usurious and there's there's a lot that goes into this about um you know justifiable opportunity cost and and things like that but just suffice it to say it's not about the level of the 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 the, um, the level of interest uh vix prevent does a great job explaining this it's not the level of, of interest rates that that define usury um but 
so I, I've, I've made the case and maybe I'll just put a link. I, I, I know I published a, a different article on this. And so maybe I'll put that in the description as well. If, if, uh, if they'll let me, um, this one's on tradmag.org, uh, former student of mine's page. If you just go tradmag.org, uh, she has this article up there. Um, but I will be republishing it. Um, so I, I argue that a realistic ban on usury. So, um, you know, if we sort of find a way to step in this idea of banning, um, sort of profitable interest on loans, you know, obviously that would, in, that would entail sort of getting rid of all credit cards that would get rid of, um, you know, all student loans would go away. Car loans would go away. The only thing that would probably be left would be home loans. I would think, uh, in terms of consumer loans, uh, home loans and, and sort of any kind of business loan would be fine. Um, under the rubric of usury because the business itself is collateral um, and, and the business itself justifies profitable interest uh, because the business is generating profit. So again, I don't want to go too far into that. Um, but <clears throat> what, what I think would happen in sort of the equilibrium that would come about after um, we would get rid of usury is that the just loans that remained, in other words, the, the loans that were in conformity with justice would likely have very high interest rates because um, there would have to be some way of uh, compensating for this very large risk that, that um, would be part of the transaction now that the, 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 the lender could not be compensated. And again, I'm thinking sort of short term here, um, I shouldn't say equilibrium maybe, but in the relatively short term here, because I think what would happen, uh, that would be a good thing is that, again, this is an example of policy affecting culture. I think what would happen would be people would see that they wouldn't have easy ways of digging themselves out of a problem. They wouldn't just say, well, you know, if something happens, I'll just put it on a credit card. Well, when you do that, you just you get a credit card and then you run the thing up. Um, lots and lots of people do that. I've done it. And it's not good. <laughs> and it's not fun. And I think what would happen is that would incentivize people to just, it would force them to go save their own money. It would force them to say, okay, look, I need to have a buffer. Um, and, and that would be all to the good. Because again, it's not just about the level of income. It's not just about the level of your standard of living. It's also about the variance of your standard of living. And, and, and again, this is nothing revolutionary. This is just sort of basic microeconomic theory, but just bringing in one more concept, variance, risk, um, uh, to, to make these arguments. And I think it's totally sensible from, a, from an economic standpoint. And so um, that sort of being abrupt, uh, this is sort of, um, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in the social encyclicals, Rerum Novarum, Quadragesimo Anum. And again, I'll, I'll get some links to some of that stuff, uh, put in the description later if, if I can. Um, I think Catholic social teaching or, uh, you know, sort of how the church sort of trades off between the sort of two platonic ideals of capitalism and socialism, if you want to, uh, try to understand it that way. Um, I think it, it, it helps us understand how to promote the common good including protection and property rights with sound economic policy analysis that treats the justice of the transactions uh, very, uh, very 
seriously. Um, and it does not just let um, ethics and morality uh, sort of sink all the way down to, well, whatever, whatever you choose is fine with, you know, it's just fine. You know, if you, you picked it, so you deal with the consequences. Uh, no, I think, I think um, it's good for us um, as human beings to have some externally imposed constraints on our behavior um, uh, b- before <laughs> we see how bad the, the, the effects can be. I mean, I think, you know, I think this is, this is a point that, uh, that a lot of commentators across the political spectrum, the illiberal political spectrum bring up is that, you know, that, that socialism is pretty, pretty popular among Gen Z, the, the Zoomers. And, you know, I think what we need to do, um, what I think the right wing needs to do is to smartly articulate an economic way of thinking that is human focused there's more human focus than liberal economics. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, as, as somebody who is a trained economist, I think, I mean, this is something I really want to help contribute to. And I think, uh, I, you know, I want to work with philosophers and theologians in this space to make this case and, and, uh, uh make it in a way that people understand and that they see this as something sort of beneficial to them. And so I, with that, I do appreciate your attention. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.